0: Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Strategic Dialogues. On this episode, I'm actually very excited because it's, it's a subject that's one of my core research um, interests, the subject of the responsibility to protect and the broader issues about norm dynamics in international relations, but also the, the prevention and um, addressing of mass atrocities in the global arena. 15 years after the institutionalization of the responsibility to protect at the 2005 World Summit, it's an apt moment to take stock of R2P's development from its endorsement to and its status um, presently, particularly in this global context, marked by a mix of political and normative currents and developments. The principle of R2P, and some would argue here and call it even an emerging norm or even normative framework stipulates that the international community has a responsibility to protect people from crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. Its endorsement was a watershed moment for the collective will to address mass atrocities and to operationalize the mantra of never again, with reference to the conscience-shocking events in Rwanda, Srebrenica, and Cambodia, among many other cases. Contrary to popular misperception, R2P is not primarily about military intervention. R2P focuses on a range of measures, including preventive and coercive ones in addressing mass atrocities. Its evolution and operationalization since 2005 has come with both high and low points, and a hard look at its progress and prospects needs a balanced and nuanced view from a variety of perspectives. To guide us through this, reflection and objective stock stock taking, we are honored to have the Secretary General Special Advisor on the Responsibility to Protect, Dr. Karen Smith. Dr. Smith was appointed a Special Advisor of the United Nations Secretary General on the Responsibility to Protect in January 2019. She currently teaches international relations at the Institute for History at Leiden University in the Netherlands and is an honorary research associate at the University of Cape Town. Before that, she taught at the universities of Stellenbosch and the Western Cape. Her research focuses on non-Western contributions to international relations theory, as well as on the changing global order. Her most recent publication is a co-edited book, International Relations from the Global South, published in 2020 by Routledge. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Um, I think, yes, yeah, yeah, I think... Let's just dive right into it, and I mean, it's interest, It's it's very um, important for for us to have you because I think, in addition to your formal role as as um, advisor, special advisor on R two P, I think you also bring a very interesting perspective in the sense that you're also um, an academic. So it's important to get an analysis from just that scholarly perspective, but also in a sense from a from a practitioner perspective um, in this case. So I think I just want to dive right in and, and focus in on just a broad um, overview of where R2P is, because as I've said, following its ad- adoption in, in 2005 at the World Summit, um, the the kind of response and perception and the kind of praise that R2P has garnered is that it's been hailed as a normative force, as an institutional catalyst, particularly for collective action and collective responsibility in addressing mass atrocities. So now after 15 years, and in this case, maybe 16 years, what are some of the milestones and success stories in R2P's development as a norm and in its operationalization? I think maybe start from there.
1: Thanks very much, faith. And I just want to start by saying thanks very much for inviting me to be to be part of this discussion today. And I, I think you probably be more of an RTP expert than I am. So in terms of the scholarly discussion, um, I think it'll be interesting to hear from your side as well. I also want to say that, you know, it's a it's a pity that we can't meet in person and that we're doing this online. Um, But yeah, such is the world today. Uh, So yeah, let me start with that. With that question, I think And you're absolutely right. I mean, the way you introduced R2P, it really was very much a kind of milestone in terms of, you know, reframing, thinking about what sovereignty ultimately means. So shifting the focus from sovereignty as a right to sovereignty as a responsibility, uh, which actually, of course, had had its roots in in Africa at the time as well. And thinking firstly within the OAU and later the AU that we can talk about perhaps later as well. And so if we look back, it's been 16 years, as you said, I mean, I think, you know, we have to be, we have to be realistic to say that the kind of lofty promise and those, those lofty expectations of, of what R2P would be able to do um, have not been fulfilled. Now, I mean, having said that, it's only been 16 years. So I think, you know, we have to, we have to keep that in mind that it's still, if you wanna call it a norm or a principle, it's still, it's still a young norm. Um, and at the same time, I think there has been considerable progress both in advancing the conceptualization and the operi- uh, operationalization of the principle. And I want to start by, by mentioning what I think is probably the most important thing, and that is that it's now generally accepted in the international system that not only individual states, but also the international community has a responsibility to protect vulnerable populations. That really, that kind of basic principle really is no longer questioned. And I think that is something that you know we shouldn't underestimate. And so the remaining challenges, which we'll speak about as well, um, and the debates really relate to in- implementation. So it's more questions about who, how, and when, rather than whether to fulfill the responsibility to protect. And then also, I mean, often when, when we think about the support, the kind of political support that R2P has, we tend to measure it by looking at things like, you know, voting patterns in the General Assembly. But here I also want to say that you know, by focusing only on government positions, which of course are often based on entrenched ideological positions, we're overlooking the support for R2P by people on the ground, especially in states where atrocity crimes are occurring or are imminent. And you know, here I think we've all in recent months seen the very vivid images of protesters in Myanmar holding up placards and calling for R2P. So, you know, beyond the political support that is shown consistently by a large majority of UN member states for the principle, this for me is perhaps the most significant indication that R2P remains as important as ever. Now, I mean, I'll just mention a few things in terms of uh, political institutionalization at the UN. Um, So just for for the listeners uh, who maybe aren't as familiar with it, the the Secretary General has produced now 13 reports on R2P, uh, annual reports that have served to further define and refine the concept and also suggested ways of implementation. So of course, this is an important part of advancing any principle. Um, the other thing is that this year for the fourth time, there's been a formal agenda, uh, sorry, a formal debate of the responsibility to protect in the General Assembly. Previously, they were, these were informal debates. Now this might sound like a small thing, but within the UN, uh, you know, this type of institutionalization is quite important. Uh, similarly, in May this year, uh, the second, so it's only the, the, the second uh, G- uh, General Assembly resolution on R2P that has been passed, and that was in May this this year, that now places R2P on the permanent agenda of the General Assembly, and also calls for a mandated annual report. And again, I think this underlines the fact that the majority of UN members regard this as an important issue that needs to be discussed annually as part of the the formal agenda of the General Assembly. Um, In terms of um, kind of wider support for the principle, there's a group of friends of the responsibility to protect uh, both in New York and in Geneva at the UN. um, And there are more than 50 states in each of these groups. And maybe maybe just on that point, I think while we tend to focus on New York when we think about R2P and and the UN, there have also been developments in Geneva. Uh, Last year, we saw the passing of the first ever Human Rights Council resolution on R2P. Um, And last month, we held the first Human Rights Council intercessional debate on R2P. But maybe if I I come back to, I said, you know, earlier that when people think about political support for R2P, they think about things like, you know, voting in the General Assembly. But also, I think when people generally think about the successes and failure of R2P by the UN, they tend to focus on, on the Security Council. Um, and perhaps this is something we can come back to as well but i think this is linked to a kind of persistent misconception that you mentioned at the beginning faith that r2p is primarily about military intervention. Uh, intervention and what this does is it kind of distracts our attention from the fact that r2p is first and foremost about prevention and so it's only when prevention has failed that states have the responsibility to respond and even then, military action is the very last resort. And of course, it can only be authorized by the UN Security Council in line with the UN Charter and existing international law. Um, so maybe I'll stop there for now. I can give you some examples of you know so-called success, success stories of R2P, but perhaps we can get to that in a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think you've you've given the 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 important groundwork um, in this conversation. But I just want to circle back to um, something you said um, made me think that it's important to also just um, address and point to the listeners, perhaps those who are unfamiliar with just the context in which um, R2P emerged. As I said, its endorsement in in 2005 at the World Summit Outcome document um, was a major milestone, diplomatic milestone. But if we actually take a step back and look at the the, the, the context, the global and um, normative context, because it, it didn't emerge in a vacuum, it actually emerged in the context of um, the debates in the 90s, um, particularly about the question of humanitarian intervention um, and the need, for instance, to move that debate around from around the language of of, of, um, of a right to actually a responsibility, because um, for those familiar with history, in the 90s there was the the NATO-led intervention in Kosovo, and it sparked debate on the international arena because. Um, the findings of, of an international commission actually label that intervention in as much as it was um, done under the 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 banner of humanitarian intervention, that those actions were um, illegal, but they were legitimate, particularly if you look at the idea of um, the debate around the use of force for, for human protection uh, purposes. So in that polarizing context is when you see... Um, uh, then secretary general un secretary general kofi annan sort of throwing in the gauntlet and saying that we need um we they, we need a framework we need um a guidepost in terms of guiding the international community's response to mass atrocity um, away from the polarizing debates and away from the from using the cloak of sovereignty to hide behind or uh, leaders or perpetrators of mass atrocities, using the, the cloak of sovereignty to hide behind it and, and commit mass atrocities. So that was the context in which I2P emerged. And actually prior to the World Summit outcome document, there was a very comprehensive report put forward in 2001 by the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty in which now we see the I2P um, a norm emerging normal then as a as a, before it was even endorsed it was then a principle and and framework being put forward and outlining the key tenets that the fact that there was, um, three key areas there was there was the responsibility to prevent the responsibility, um, to react and also a responsibility to rebuild so that those that was what is, was important and then, then we have the the watershed moment which was the wild out um outcome. Uh, document from the summit. And then, um, interestingly, after 2005, then we have in 2009, it's starting now to gain normative traction. In 2009, we see the Secretary General's report outlining a three-pillar formulation of R2P and guiding its implementation. So the first pillar was um, emphatic about the responsibility of the state. So hence, we see the the emphasis on state responsibility to protect uh, popula- its populations from um, mass atrocity crimes. The second pillar is the, the idea of now taking in the focus to the international level and um, doubling down on the commitment of the international community to assist states in meeting these obligations. And then the third pillar is when we see in the case that there's manifest failure by the states to meet these responsibilities, then we switch to the idea when there's a need for now um, member states of the international community to respond in a timely and decisive manner when a state is manifestly um, failing to provide um, such uh, protection. But therein is another angle that I also want to to um, zero in on. And this is the idea that we can't also ignore just the, the, the kind of African pioneering role that was played in just not only the idea of, of Deng's idea of articulating the... Sovereignty as responsibility notion, but also the idea of the African Union, which was actually the first uh, regional organization to act to um, have within its its constitutive act um, a right to intervene in cases of mass atrocity crime. So that was important, and we can actually argue that R two P emerges quite literally from the soil and the soul um, of Africa. So I think those that's that's an important element too to uh, chime in on, especially when we talk about the normative entrepreneurship and the normative championing of of R2P from its inception. And I just want to circle back to that, the question of normative championing and and advocacy, because while, like you are saying, while there's been a tendency to focus on the more visible, the more politicized, perhaps more contested notion of the responsibility to react at the third pillar level, there's also been a, a tendency to devote a lot of attention to theory, But when you look at at 15 years later and the fact that we're still discussing R2P means that it's resilient in that case, in in discourse, and that its resilience can be attributed to a range of stakeholders, not just at the political level, but also you have research and advocacy centers like the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect in New York, the Asia-Pacific Center in in Australia, the group of, like you already mentioned, in the group of friends of R2P and also R2P focal points, among others, but there's still an uphill battle when it comes to domestic implementation at the national level. So I think the question that I want maybe for you to speak to a bit is how is R2P being mainstreamed at the national level? Is there progress on this point in terms of moving the imperative not only from a focus at the international level but also at the local and at the the national level?
1: Thanks, Faith. I think you've touched on so many interesting points that if, if you'll allow me, I just want to pick up on, on some of them before I get to that question about national implementation. Um, because I think, you know, this question about R2P and how it relates to humanitarian intervention is a really important one, because I think it's it's something that people still confuse. You know, I speak to many, many diplomats and, and policymakers and, and many of them think that it's the same thing. And of course, as you as you kind of emphasized, I mean, a very important part of developing the idea of, of, of the responsibility to protect was really to address the the criticism of humanitarian intervention in the '90s, where you know essentially it was uh, individual states that were deciding to unilaterally intervene in countries on the basis of you know what they claim to be humanitarian concerns, and so. Uh, an important step i think that was made with developing the responsibility to protect was to say that you know this is not this is not allowed i mean this is illegal under international law and therefore under the responsibility to protect the emphasis is very much on um well as i said firstly preventing and secondly assisting states to fulfill their responsibility to protect their own populations but when it comes to the international community responding when a state um, is not doing that, so is so-called manifestly failing to protect its own populations, um, then of course, there's a number of steps that can be taken. And, and, and as you said, military intervention or military force is the very last one. And very importantly, that has to now be um, authorized by the UN Security Council, which means that it has to be in line with the UN Charter. So unlike humanitarian intervention, uh, which essentially, you know, in the 90s, as you as you mentioned, states were taking action, you know, on their own accord without it being authorized by a multilateral uh, body and under international law, like like uh, like it is with the Security Council. I think that's a really important point to kind of underline. Now, of course, that you know, that the Security Council having this amount of power comes with other challenges, which we can speak about as well. Um, but I also just wanted to, again, highlight what you said about the the kind of African origins of RTP, which, again, I think is really important, because another big misconception about RTP, besides the, the fact that, um, you know, it's regarded as, as being kind of the equivalent of, of humanitarian intervention or, or military intervention, is this notion that it's a Western concept. And as you note, noted, um, you know, there was this 2001 International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. Which was sponsored by the Canadian government, but in fact, um, it was co-chaired by, um, uh, gosh, and no, I've forgotten his name, Gareth Evans. Sorry, Gareth, uh, Gareth Evans uh, from Australia, and Mohamed Sanoun from Algeria. Um, so even there, in terms of the co-chairmanship of this commission, you know, we had a we had a kind of inter-regional. Um, representation, but also the commissioners that served on it. So there was a deliberate um, attempt to include a cross-regional group of commissioners. And actually, I think we sometimes forget this. One of those commissioners was current South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. So he was part of that group of commissioners who actually developed this report and came up with this idea of the responsibility to protect, which, as you mentioned, Faith, really had its roots in thinking that was going on in Africa at the time uh, around kind of rethinking the peace and, and security architecture that was being developed by the, the organization of African unity and then later the, the African union. And I also wanted to just you know, um, share this quote that um, Nelson Mandela actually made in 1998, where he said, Africa has a right and a duty to intervene, to root out tyranny. We must all accept that we cannot abuse the concept of national sovereignty to deny the rest of the continent, the right and duty to intervene when behind those sovereign boundaries, people are being slaughtered to protect tyranny. And this was a really important shift in Africa in terms of thinking, um, you know, about, or or rather a shift from non-intervention to non indifference. Uh, and as you mentioned again, Faith, I, and I want to again emphasize this because people tend to forget this, that the essence of what became the responsibility to protect was included in the AU's Constitutive Act under Article 4H, which specifically authorized the African Union uh, to use collective action against member states when there was a determination that um, war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity had occurred. So. Um, Sorry for taking time, but I think that's a really important uh, point to make—that uh, that R2P has these African roots, uh, in essence. And and maybe if we have time, we can also talk about how um, African, particularly sub-regional organizations like ECOWAS, have actually, you know, been implementing and operationalizing R2P. Because one of the success stories that I might speak about later was actually um, the role of ECOWAS in the constitutional crisis in the Gambia in 2017. So here we see RTP being implemented, you know, on the ground at the grassroots level. But coming back to your question about how it's being implemented at the national level, and again, this is an important point, um, because while, you know, we talk about the international community, we talk about the UN, you know, ultimately it's states that hold the primary responsibility for living up to the commitment that they made in 2005. Um, And I think here, it's also important to say that one of the challenges with R2P is that many states still think about it as a foreign policy issue. Um, And this is problematic, um, particularly because partly it reinforces this notion that it's a, a Western concept because we see states, you know, thinking about, oh, how does R2P apply in other parts of the world? Whereas essentially it's really about, you know, when we want to take prevention seriously, we should recognize that prevention starts at home and so ultimately the core of the responsibility to protect is that if every state lives up, up to its obligations, the, re- the commitment that it made in 2005 to protect its populations from these, these, these gross violations of human rights, um, then there wouldn't be a need for any international response. Um, and so, I want to underline this point that you know we really we really should move away from this idea that only some countries are at risk of atrocity crimes, and by this I mean generally you know states in the global south or developing states. Because if we if we look around us at the world and over the last few years, we've really witnessed a, a very worrying surge in anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Semitism, attacks against Christians intolerance regarding you know, targeting various groups because of their identity, whether religious, ethnic or national. Um, and often this is expressed through hate speech that targets these vulnerable minority groups. And perhaps I should mention refugees here as well. That's another important vulnerable group. Um, and so we know that hate speech, this kind of you know, expression of, of discrimination against others or hatred against others, and, and sometimes uh, accompanied by an incitement to violence That is often the beginning of the the warning signs of, you know, there's a potential for atrocity crimes to happen further down the line. And so really, I want to emphasize that, you know, there's really no country where some of these risk factors cannot be identified. And so all societies are potentially vulnerable. Um, And so in terms of, you know, what states should be and, and, and many have been doing to strengthen societal resilience against future threats of violence. Um, you know, this includes a whole host of things. So when we talk about preventing um, atrocity crimes, which is at the heart of what the responsibility to protect is about, it includes what, you know, so-called kind of structural prevention. So this could include things like strengthening the rule of law, promoting respect for human rights, um, addressing economic inequality. um, And then if we move to some of these triggering factors could be addressing hate speech and excitement to violence. And we've actually seen in terms of, finally, back to your question, Faith, what if, have what if states been doing to implement this at the national level? Uh, many states have adopted specific mechanisms to strengthen resilience to atrocity crimes. Um, and they've, as you said, they've also appointed national focal points who are supposed to be individuals that kind of um, you know, look at what is happening at the national level across government departments um, and 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 you know different par- different activities that government is engaged in, and thinking about um, you know how all of these should be contributing to uh, preventing atrocities. Um, I also want to mention the important role that I think is still very much undervalued and underutilized, and that's the role of national parliaments. Um, together with ombudspersons and national human rights institutions in promoting this agenda. Um, And I also want to when we talk about, you know, at the national level, I I, I think we should really not forget the role of civil society, um, and particularly religious leaders, but also women's and youth groups, um, who are doing a lot of important work that ultimately supports the atrocity prevention agenda. Having said that, you know, much remains to be done. Um, and I think it, you know, we should, so yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, much remains to be done. And I think it's important that all of us continuously remind states that they have obligations, not just as part of their commitment to the responsibility to protect, but also under existing international law to prevent and respond to atrocities such as genocide. And that they really must use all the tools available to them to meet these obligations. Um, and maybe just to highlight a few, states' cooperation with human rights monitoring mechanisms um, and compliance with their recommendations really entails a great potential for advancing our collective prevention framework. Um, maybe I'll stop there for now. There's lots that I can still say, but I see we're, we're running out of time, so back over to you, Faith.
2: Um, th- thanks, Karen. I think um, it's it's been... Fascinating, um, firstly, the fact that you are the special advisor and, and, and the insights that you have offered, um, and secondly, I think just giving us serious insa- uh, serious food for thought around the issues with regard to an instrument that is so critical, particularly now as we enter age of impunity at times and part of the part of the discussion or part of what I want to just um, explore with you is the issue around you you touched on on, on regional in institutions you touched on the national implementation you spoke about the role of parliament legislative assemblies and so forth but also you know just looking at uh, society in general and, and and civil society in general but also i think think tanks and academia that form part of the civil society groups etc um, around the r2p and how the how how it how it is operationalized uh, in addition to how it is institutionalized and instrumentalized within national uh, settings, for me, one of the things that I find curious about the R two P is the, the 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 kind of discourse that surrounds it. And you touched on that as well. You know, it's a Western uh, a Western centric institutional architecture. Uh, it's seen at times as very top down heavy um how do you actually b- create the the credibility and the legitimacy around it um just the kind of practicalities that 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 kind of you know s- uh, skirt and, and and surround the r2p but in, importantly you know the question i have particularly now as we're going through this kind of existential reflection of institutions in the global architecture um and and that that reflection is also linked to this debate about the global governance agenda being reformed, um, and how does that reform take place? Um, and more importantly, how that reform reflects current structures of power, uh, engagements with actors from the global south, in particular, actors like China, you know, India, and so forth, who have become critical actors in terms of the BRICS, uh, South Africa as a, as, a, as a kind of normative actor, Um, as well as uh, a middle power at times, uh, looking at Canada and so forth. Is it possible for us to to, to think about the the institutional architecture of the R2P in terms of where this traction finds itself in the global south, particularly because... There's this whole agenda around the fact that the global governance arena hasn't really transformed. There's a power imbalance. The power dynamics around the institutional architecture of the global governance uh, uh, system is still very much a world caught up in in post Second World War after 1945. And that part of the, the 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 challenges around the the global governance agenda is related to a reflection that there that, that some countries just don't want to give up that what what has been their their their. Their positioning in the world, and still remain the kind of moral voice on issues, but sometimes their morality is questioned. So, just maybe some 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 impressions around those kind of institutional architecture and challenges that that po- that you come across in making sure that this this institution of, of the RTP it does not find itself caught in the wilderness because it's these these competing geopolitics and power dynamics are beginning to underpin and undermine it at certain points.
1: Thanks, Anusha. Wow, how much time do we have? Um, Really interesting question. Um, I want to start, I think, by saying that, of course, you know, in terms of the future of the responsibility to protect. But I dare say, you know, this the RTP is not unique in this in terms of the future of, you know, the human rights regime, um, multilateralism, we have to be realistic and, and recognize that as you as you outlined, we really are in an era in which, you know, these values, I guess, um, are com- coming under increasing pr- pressure from from a number of, of states. But at the same time, I think there's also a strong counterweight, both of states and civil society, um, you know, that sees the urgency in, in kind of stemming the tide and, and making sure that these values are uphold. And you know, I think we also need to recognize that the tide can turn. I mean, if until last year, I would say that the Trump administration was undoubtedly amongst the list of those posing a threat to the values of multilateralism, democracy, and human rights. Um, And that has now changed Um, in terms of, you know, the, the role of the global South in, in this whole um, picture, and perhaps specifically with regards of, uh, to the responsibility to protect. um, Maybe I want to pick up on what Faith was saying earlier about, you know, norms and how norms are, um, you know, diffused and internalized. um, So in terms of the kind of language about, uh, you know, normative development, and here we have seen that R2P has been contested in some ways by states such as India, but also many states on the African continent, China. But I think what is interesting, and that you know goes back to the very first point that I make, I don't think any state is challenging or contesting the, the essence of the principle. So this idea that states have um, the responsibility to protect their own populations and also although this is a little bit more ambiguous, that other states have some kind of responsibility, whether it is to assist those states or respond in some way, right? Um, so in that way, I think we see some contestation of the norm happening, but it's not undermining the norm. So, you know, and, and I don't wanna, wanna get into the kind of theoretical literature here, but of course there's a whole debate around the, um, you know, what happens when a norm is contested. It can lead to the, an undermining and, and, and eventual death of the norm but it can actually also help to strengthen the norm. Um, and, you know, I see the way forward for R2P is actually that we should allow critical discussion and contestation. And we, we need to hear more of the, the voices, particularly from the global south around these norms. And of course, many of them are critical and many of them have to do with, uh, you know, everything that you said. So the way in which, uh, you know, certain states still seem to be holding the kind of moral gra- high ground on these issues. Which I think we need to challenge consistently, but it also has to do with, you know, institutional structures, uh, for example, within the United Nations, the Security Council, which I guess we could have an entire other discussion on. Right. So the, the, the fact that that remains um, an unrepresentative and really illegitimate institution uh, in the sense that the global South is not represented there. But I think you know all of this, and and this is always when I speak to to representatives of, of um, you know states in the global South. I mean, all of this for me is not an excuse not to be active in terms of atrocity prevention, right? So, um, and I think this is an important thing as well when we think about you know the future of R two P and where we're going, and we're seeing steps being taken in that direction at the moment. It's really not good enough to say, well, you know. The Security Council is constantly deadlocked on these issues. So really, you know, there's not much we can do. There's lots that can be done. And so just, you know, some of the things that I mentioned under the responsibilities of individual states, I mean, that's where it all starts. But in terms of other venues where states from the global south, I think, have more um, have more voice and have more influence. I mean, firstly, is in, in the U.N. General Assembly. And again, you know, that's a body which, again, it's, it, it has underused to utilize its powers under the UN Charter in terms of being able to play a more active role in terms of both preventing but also responding to atrocities. And then another point, and, and perhaps I'm not going to go into any of these in detail. If you want me to, we can talk about it a bit more. Um, I think the other important thing is to look at um, the role of region, regional organizations in particular in moving this agenda forward and adapting it in a way that, you know, makes sense and is appropriate to the, the regional context. And here, you know, we have seen a lot of this happening in, in the African continent, both at the level of the AU, but as I also briefly mentioned, at the level of sub-regional organizations like uh, like ECOWAS, for example. And so I think, you know, it, for me, it's a kind of constant challenge as well to, to, to get States from the global South to engage much more in this discussion and to kind of own the discussion, right? To say, well, and you know, in the sense of African states, well, actually, you know, this idea of the responsibility to protect it, it essentially came from came from us. Um, and so to say, well, actually, we don't agree with the way in which it has now developed, whether it is with regards to, um, you know, the criticism about Libya And how, um, you know, the the Security Council mandate there was was clearly um, exceeded. Now, for me, that is not a reason to say let's never use military force uh, when it comes to preventing atrocities. It's about how do we, what lessons can we learn from what happened, what went wrong in the Libyan case, right? So how do we hold the Security Council accountable when it authorizes the use of force? Or how, how do we do this differently, and and I think that's a discussion that uh, there's still lots that that uh, you know, we need to hear from both in terms of constructive criticism and and alternative solutions from states in the global south. I'm going to stop there for now. But if there's anything else that you want me to go back to, please let me know.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, before I, I, I um, give Sanusha a chance to just follow up on her question, I think you've you've pointed to some very important. Um, elements, particularly in response not only to the critique, uh wide ranging critique, both from a, a scholarly perspective, but also touching on the real questions about implementation. And it seems to me that um and, and I also don't wanna get too academic in terms of the critique, but just when you look at the, the nature of I 2 P, the questions about its its um normative aspects, the questions about whether um the fact that it's still lacking Conceptual clarity, the, the ambiguity um, that supposedly will undermine its its effect, and and now linking it to the the, the other practical questions like um, Sanusha was asking about generally how we square off um, exhortations about its transformative impact, and now the gap with with what the perilous state of human rights. I mean, if you look at situations, for instance, in Syria, in Myanmar, in Tigray, um, where they're all asking is r 2 p um, dead, ways are R2P in this case, where there's, there's um, cries of mass atrocity um, crimes being committed, and it seems as if there's inaction or there's paralysis at the international level. So how do we square off that disconnect? I think that's an important question. And that's the one that a lot of people, a lot of um, um, sort of critics sort of zoom in on, um, apparently. But in just navigating around, that, I think it's important to also remember that In this context, as Sanusha was saying, the shifting global dynamics, um, the normative turbulence that we are seeing, international policymakers, a lot of scholars, a lot of R2P advocates have actually consciously redirected the focus of the debate on R2P towards the preventive and the practical dimensions of the concept because there's a lot of value. Um, to be gotten for that, and and um, Kayan, you've alluded to some of the the reasons for this strategic shift in in this direction. The idea of linking it to other um, concepts that are broadly connected in this idea of protection, the protection agenda, whether it's protection of civilians, whether it's the women, peace, and security agenda, for instance. There was a need to. Um, interlock those aspects and see how R two P also adds value to the question. For instance, of um, atrocity prevention, so it's it's apparent then as we as we are talking now that a, a lot of the sticking points lie at the implementation level not least because of the limiting impact of, of real politics, um, the question of deadlock about within the Sec- Security Council, the power politics at play, but also the enduring debates about, for instance, inconsistent application, for instance, why Libya and not Syria, and also the questions about uh, the potential for abuse in the service of um, the self-interested uh, goals of powerful states. Those are some of the main um, critiques. But I think I, um, I also want to touch just something important on what you've said on two levels. So, for instance, in a case, in a critique, um, a criticism about the, the real politic, the paralysis or inaction um, at, the, at the UN Security Council level, in cases where the Security Council is unable to prevent or address mass atrocities, there's also been um, another development, another debate opening up, which speaks to just how um, there's been um, a lot of normative traction particularly because of the kind of um, catalyst element that I2p offers is the question of what role then can the you, um, UN general Assembly play and i I came across a very interesting um proposition by the Global um, the global Centre for R2P, which put forward a guidance document on the legal options available to the UN General Assembly. And here they not only allude to the Uniting for Peace agenda, um, long history there, but just to, to, to speak uh, very quickly on the, on the Uniting for Peace agenda, I mean, it cycles back to 1950, um, when in order to circumvent the Soviet veto on, on UN Security Council action in the Korean War, Um, the the resolution then provided that if the Security Council, uh, because of a lack of unanimity on uh, the permanent members, if there's paralysis in this case, if it fails to exercise its primary responsibilities for the maintenance of international peace and security, then the General Assembly shall consider the matter immediately with a view to making um, appropriate recommendations. So the Uniting for Peace agenda actually capitalizes on the powers on the responsibilities of the UN General Assembly, and, and in this case, some of the powers of the United General uh, U- UN um, General Assembly would be, for instance, to it might establish uh, fact-finding missions, which it actually did in Syria. It might establish commission um, commission of inquiry. Um, it can also ask uh, or, or make quasi-judicial um, interpretations. It can also refer the matter and ask for legal opinion from the um, international. Um, uh, Court of Justice. So those are just some of the the measures, and and uh, I'd, I'd also ask those who are interested to to go and look at that guidance document by the the Global Centre. So those those are some of the ways that we're 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 sort of navigating the more contentious aspects of implementation, if you like. So that's one element at the UN level. Um, there's also another interesting. Um, development that I've come across, which I think also speaks to just the normative, the kind of normative force that R2P presents in terms of and its catalyzing elements, is also the idea of. Um, And here is is where I'm talking about the contribution also from the Global South, as Sanusha asked. So interestingly, very quickly, there's also been a proposition to introduce what is called a code of conduct um, regarding Security Council Against Genocide, which was launched in 2015 um, by a group of about, I think it was 20, 25 25, uh, UN member states. So this code of conduct basically urges Um, all all permanent and elected members of the UN Security Council not to vote against um, any credible resolution aimed at preventing or halting mass atrocity. And lastly, the other initiative is a French-Mexican initiative that calls on the P5 members of the Security Council to not veto or block a draft resolution aimed at presenting or ending mass atrocities. So this, those are just some of the ways that we are navigating the the, the, the very turbulent waters around um, implementation. I hope this also touches or addresses some of the questions that, that you raised, Sanusha. Mm-hmm.
2: No, um, I don't know if Karen wants to respond to your comments, but Karen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have, there's always lots to say, but if you want to if you wanna, just, I just uh, kind of add, add something as well, then I can just maybe respond to all of it.
2: Yeah, no, I just wanted to add, I mean, I, you know, talking about the geopolitics, I just wanted to ask, it seems to me that part of the challenge around the R2P, uh, maybe not in the same way as the ICC or the International Criminal Court, which has a particular narrative that underpins it in terms of how it is being implemented, but I think part of the challenge is comes back to the question of the systematic reform of the UN. And I'm wondering, Karen, with your insights, having uh, in your capacity as special advisor to the Secretary General, have you? Uh, what is your impression around the idea that the reforming of the secure, of, of, of the UN, and in particular the Security Council, and how that narrative? impacts on the R2P in terms of the the challenges it goes through, but also in terms of its implementation and operationalization. Um, The the, the fact of the matter is that it always comes back to the politics of the R2P. It always comes back to the question of uh, the Westphalian model of how state-centric approaches or the question around subsidiarity is, is placed. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, being being in the inner sanctum of, of 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 the UN, to what extent is that also part of the way in which the R2P can be reorientated for 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 what its fit for purpose is? I mean, that's the one question. The other question is, you know, the way the 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 mandate—not necessarily the mandate—but what constitutes acts of atrocity? What constitutes uh, acts of atrocity or, or, or against humanity, um, the human rights spring, etc. I mean, now we're going into the whole question of of climate change, ecological atrocities, uh, climate refugees, etc. I mean, should the should the should the focus of the R two P still be based on how we do uh, in, uh, in in what constitutes acts of atrocity? Because then, for example. Uh, as, you, as you rightly pointed out, there's no country in the world that doesn't actually have these challenges within their boundaries, within their borders. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what makes the fact that you want to defend uh, the question of human rights in China, but not defend the question of human rights in your own country? And when does the R2P then become a, that point of intervention? Thanks.
1: Again, difficult question, Sanusha, and there's there's a, there's so much that Faith said that I want to comment on as well, but maybe because this is fresh in my mind, I'll just pick up on some of the things you've said. And I mean, to be honest, I don't really have you know clear answers to them. i I, I absolutely agree with you in terms of you know the fact that we, we can't, obviously when we think about the responsibility to protect or any other global norm, uh, or you know, if we think about human rights at the UN, uh, we we cannot ignore the political realities that are influencing the work of of whether it's the Security Council or any other parts of, of the UN system, um, and I think this is you know this is the nature of, of of global governance, and I think we're finding ourselves you know in a particularly difficult time at the moment, and, and so clearly this is having an influence on how states think about um, the responsibility to protect, how they think about you know questions around uh, you know selective application etc. Um, but again, I want to kind of emphasize that I don't think this is unique to the responsibility to protect, um, and I don't think it should kind of deter us from from thinking about you know how to move what really is at the at the heart of it, which is preventing atrocities uh, forward. Um, so that's a kind of maybe a cop out answer to that. But I, I think I mean, there's there's really so much that we need to be talking about, and I mean, the reform of the UN as a whole, you know. Different kind of ball game, and and unfortunately, we know that Security Council reform is not likely to move forward anytime soon, and and that you know remains at the heart, I think, of a lot of discussions that states from the global South still feel that the power in the UN predominantly lies with the Security Council, and that you know it is this this selective body of 15 states and five that have the veto power. Um, but maybe just, you know, there are some, some silver linings, perhaps. I mean, Faith mentioned the, the two initiatives with regards to limiting the use of the veto when it comes to uh, atrocity crimes. And that has um, received a lot of um, and an increasing support from a, from, a, from a large group of member states. At the moment, of course, only two of the permanent five members are supporting that idea. Um, so the one, uh, of course, refers to the permanent members not exercising their veto when, it's a, when it concerns a case where atrocity crimes are happening. And the other relates more to um, the, the conduct and the voting of, of all the members of the Security Council. So there is, in that sense, I think there's small progress that's being made in terms of at least states saying, well, you know, we, we, we don't want to accept the way in which the Security Council operates and how whether or not the international community takes action to to protect populations from genocide uh, hangs on one state voting no uh, in the Security Council, which is is actually, it's it's obscene. Um, So I think at least the discussion is is moving forward. But yeah, the question of UN reform remains, of course, a major, major challenge, both for those within the UN and outside. but again, here, I want to maybe point to the fact that we need to think outside of the UN as well. So while it's very clearly stated in uh, the World Outcome Summit document that only the UN Security Council has the power to authorize the use of force, uh, you know, as, a, as a mechanism to respond to atrocity crimes, there's a whole host of other things that can be done before we get to that point, right? So in line with the UN Charter, all of the mechanisms, both Pacific and uh, coercive, um, under the charter can also be exercised by the General Assembly, for example, as Faith pointed out, but also by regional organizations. So, you know, again, I want to make this point that I made earlier, that I think we we shouldn't just keep focusing on the Security Council as, you know, we need to wait for the Security Council to to solve the issue. Um, We should be looking at potential alternatives of what other bodies both within the UN and outside and we haven't really talked about the Human Rights Council which I think is also an important actor in this regard particularly in terms of early prevention and and also early warning um, you know so so these are these are I think areas that we need to consider and again where states in the global south I think have uh, a lot more influence and I have a lot have a lot more say now just briefly to your point about you know what constitutes acts of atrocity I mean Again, for political reasons, the the text that was negotiated um, during the the World Summit in 2005 that led to um, what we now regard as, this is what responsibility to protect means, it very very deliberately um, narrowed what the responsibility to protect uh, applies to, um, namely the four crimes, genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity, which, of course, are all um, defined under international law. So there are specific legal definitions that are attached to those. Um, Because, you know, partly, there were were concerns by some states that, again, the responsibility to protect could be used as an excuse to intervene on the basis of, you know, human rights violations. So that it's very specific, and I think it should remain that way, that it applies only to these four um, you know, very serious human rights violations. But of course, when you mention things like climate change, it's very clear that you know, climate change is having an impact um, on the, particularly the, the increased risk of atrocity crimes against, uh, particularly against uh, people who are already vulnerable, populations who are already vulnerable. And in the same light, I would also say something like, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has very clearly increased the the vulnerabilities and the risk of of people, um, you know, minorities and people who are already in vulnerable positions, such as refugees. Um, But I, you know, I don't think, and there's a whole debate about this. So should we broaden RTP to include things like, uh, you know, uh, environmental disasters? And of course, we saw a debate about this when, when the, the French wanted to use uh, the responsibility to protect, to essentially take action in, in Myanmar um, under the, the hurricane uh, uh, Nargis. And, and that was actually, you know, it became a huge debate. So the way I see it, I mean, you know, I think we should, we should take things like climate change very seriously and look at how that increases the risk of atrocity crimes. But I don't think that you know, climate, uh, climate change or environmental disasters themselves, you know, qualify as atrocity crimes. Um, so I think it's really, it's important also in terms of the, the discussion. And I, I often hear this when I speak to member states, particularly those who are more critical uh, of the concept, um, that, you know, they, they, they don't want it to move beyond what was agreed in 2005. Um, so maybe that's just, just a, a quick answer to that. And now I've forgotten everything I wanted to still comment on with regards to what uh, Faith said, but maybe you still have some other points or questions.
0: No, no, thank you, um, Karen. Um, Maybe it will come to you, but as you're heading towards um, just wrapping up the the episode, I think part of what Sanusha was saying also just uh, I think it's important for us to to just have almost um, look back um at at r two p s journey and then look forward, which is which is um some of what you've already begun um doing and in looking back i think it's important to zoom in on just what what i was talking about it being a milestone or being a watershed moment was the way in which the 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 consensus or the broad endorsement at the world summit outcome documentary reflected um a key moment, particularly in reimagining sovereignty. So this this idea of um, finding a compromise position about the issue of, when, on one hand, you want to protect human rights, so digging deep into the question of the human security um, um, paradigm, and on one hand um, also upholding the question of sovereignty as the grand norm in international relations. So that element, I think, is important when we look back at its journey and just what it's managed to achieve as a normative force. And now also as an institutional catalyst, it's also generated um traction, not only at the international level, although that's that's where a lot of the focus has been. But like you were saying, Karen, there's been the R2P focal points. There's also been regional levels. There's been a question for instance, even when you look at the, the contentious um cases like for instance Libya, um before in as much as R2P was used or invoked in justifying the 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 resolution 1973, there was also a lot of um, emphasis. Even if you look at Obama's discourse at the time on regional buy-in um, for any form of of um, action to be taken, he needed the regional buy-in. So it's this question of yes, yes, there's criticism about its conceptual clarity. Yes, there's criticism about its ambiguity, but we can't deny that. It's it's mostly at the implementation level, at the conceptual level, at the the kind of um, idea that it has as a force. It's allowed us to have a cons a consensus position. The consensus is that they need action needs to be done. Something needs to be done with regard to mass atrocities, and maybe now the debate is how um, it needs to be done. So looking forward, I think. There's been much more focus um, and movement away from the macro-level debates, the questions about meaning of sovereignty or structural reform of the Security Council. And now, like you're saying, Kain, we're moving now to the micro-level issues, the issues of um, your, your national implementation, your atrocity prevention, your, your focal points, your, your advocacy by non-state actors. That's becoming also um, a key point in, in moving the agenda forward. Um, from from not only an international policy perspective but also from a, from a research perspective. So I think in in ending it or getting getting towards the end, I think what I wanted to ask is how do you think the R two P agenda can keep pace um, with with what you're seeing uh, a shifting global context? And here, what, what I was I remember seeing um, uh, a discussion that was talking about how, for instance. We are moving to an to an age where there's even ch- uh, changes in the in the conduct of warfare. So we have this idea of drone warfare um, that's inflicting um, mass mass casualties and, and, and um, targeting civilians, but it's not your conventional case of where there's an individual who can be held responsible for that per se. It becomes even tricky, and it, it even um, doubles down on the more important aspect of prevention of these atrocities. So just how how do you see, what are your prospects, um, pro- what do you think are the prospects for R2P going forward, and, and how this agenda is is shaping up and keeping pace? Um, with with the evolution on the on the uh, global security landscape for instance
1: thanks faith again yeah very very interesting question and and you're absolutely right i think you know the world is changing around us and i think obviously the responsibility to protect has to has to keep up with that in some way. so you know despite what i said earlier about the fact that i i think the focus of of it should remain narrow so it should be focused on those those uh, four crimes, those four atrocity crimes, as, as stated in the World Outcomes Summit document. Um, it is important, of course, to link it to other agendas and to how those other agendas are advancing and developing. So I mentioned earlier, you know, that obviously climate change is becoming an, an increasing issue of, of concern. And we should think about how that links with uh, the responsibility to protect as well. Um, and, and the same with, you know, some of these discussions that we are seeing now with regards to the changing nature of warfare, for example. Because, of course, this has implications. You know, we haven't spoken about another important element, I think, of R2P, which is accountability, um, which is, you know, making sure that perpetrators of uh, these, these, these gross crimes are actually held accountable. And as you pointed out, when we get into discussions about things like drone warfare, you know, this, this is going to become increasingly difficult. And I think this is the discussion um, that, that we need to have. Um, and so perhaps that there is a little bit more that needs to be done at the conceptual, the theoretical level. But again, I want to emphasize what you said that the discussion now really has moved to you know, practical, concrete questions about implementation. And there, I think you know we need to really just be creative. And here also, I think academics and scholars can play an important role uh, in terms of thinking not just about you know these abstract theoretical questions about RTP, but thinking very specifically about um, questions of prevention, for example. And so, you know, there's there's still lots of work that needs to be done, um, even though, you know, some of it has been done already in terms of what are these, what are the risks? So how do we identify the risk factors of atrocity crimes? And then, you know, how do we address those? So what have we learned from so-called success stories? I mean, I mentioned uh, the Gambia earlier, uh, which really was one of those examples where we saw, uh, I think one of the things that we do know is that there needs to be unified action by the international community. Um and, uh, and I think, you know, in that, that case, so for people who haven't looked at that, go, do go and have a look at this case study of the, of the 2017 um, in the Gambia. I think the most important lesson that we have learned and that we need to take forward in terms of thinking about R2P is that we know that atrocity crimes do not happen overnight and they are therefore preventable. So this takes me back to the point about, you know, the emphasis on prevention, uh, which is very much the, the the approach that the UN takes. Um, I mean, this is not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about response, because clearly when we get to a situation like we currently have in Myanmar, uh, where we are beyond the point of prevention, perhaps we need to think about, you know, how do we how do we respond to a situation like that? Um, but I think the, the emphasis on, on prevention and, and really kind of taking to heart the lessons that we've learned about you know, how best to uh, prevent, how best to, um, well, to act. Because I think the other point is that we have the information. That The problem is not that we don't know when atrocity crimes are are, are happening. Um, we It's not the question of we don't see the risk signs, we're not able to identify them. We have the information. It's about how best to respond at what time and and so here this really brings me back to the importance of of uh regional organizations as well because i think you know regional organizations are are often much better placed in terms of understanding the the root causes the the risks of atrocity crimes in their respective regions when it comes to, you know, early action, uh, which could be anything from, you know, preventive diplomacy, mediation, um, you know, assisting with building resilience, there's often more trust in, at the regional level. Um, and so, again, I think so move, you know, moving our focus down from especially the Security Council, the United Nations to regional and national levels. I think that's where we need to be thinking about what do, what needs to happen at those levels. Um, so, you know, in terms of, if I could say where I want to see thinking around RTP going, I mean, that is where, where it would be. Um, and perhaps just also as a final word, you know, we talk about the role of states because obviously this was a commitment that was made by, by, by heads of state and government at the UN in 2005. But ultimately we also need to think about individual responsibility, right? So in all the work that we do, whether it is as academics or policy makers or, you know, civil society, uh, organizations, ultimately, as individuals, we all have a, a moral responsibility to do what we can in our individual capacities to prevent the types of horrific atrocities that RTP was was created to to prevent. Thanks, Faith. Uh,
2: th- thanks a lot, Karen. I think you've kind of answered part of my question, the, my final question to you. Um, around where would you like to see the R two P going, given your capacity as advisor? Um, and it, it was really going to ask. Uh, I was gonna, really going to ask the question: You know, what would you like to see in this role once you move on, in terms of the R two P um, and 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 the practicality of its implementation and its regionalization and its domestication, um, not only centered around the UN, but I think uh, outside of the UN. I mean, maybe just just as a as a last parting shot. Um, you know should should the r p be given a little bit more than a kind of loose i mean at the moment it's not a it's it, it you know it, it, it's all based on the idea that what what national governments do and what regional governments do but if you had to be asked to 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 advise perhaps the a u or or, or regional blocks in Southern in, in Africa or elsewhere, in terms of how the R2P could be instrumentalized in regional institutions and, or, 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 or institutions like um, in, in, in Africa. What would be your advice to, to, these, to these leaders?
1: Thanks, Anusha. I I think, I mean, the important thing, and we know this is a kind of refrain that in in my office at the UN, we're, you know, we're constantly saying it's about what we call an atrocity prevention lens. So it's really about encouraging whether it's national governments or regional organizations, or, you know, other parts of the UN, to kind of, you know, consistently consider atrocity prevention in whatever the work they're doing. So whether it is, um, you know, with regards to, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, states that are engaged in development assistance to other states thinking about what are the potential implications for either lowering or increasing the risk of atrocity crimes through things like development assistance Um, or when it comes to a very specific example many governments and and regional organizations as well have so-called kind of conflict prevention strategies or if we look at the the african union the continental early warning system which is very much focused on, you know, identifying early signs of of conflict. Um, And I think what is important here as well is that atrocity prevention risk factors are, or atrocity risk factors are included in those um, mechanisms or in those frameworks, because while conflict and atrocities are obviously related, they're not the same thing. And we know that atrocities can also occur outside of conflict and so and this is something that is actually happening i mean at the moment the african union is integrating atrocity risk factors in their continental early warning system so i think that would be my advice you know to consider this in across the board in terms of all of the the work that you're doing at the national level in terms of your foreign policy consider the potential implications for atrocities
0: thank thank you so much karen and i think we need to to Uh, put the discussion now um, to a close because we can go on talking about this. there's so many elements and we've said so much about the origin, we've said so much about the political, legal and practical implications of R2P there's so much more we can discuss but in wrapping up, I think it's important and here I want to, to a quote by Gareth Evans who said that R2P was actually made for pragmatists and not purists. And here he was talking about how it's also presented us with a way of translating um, the sense of duty, the sense of uh, uh, obligation into effective action so that in future years, policymakers advocates, civil society. We as the international community will not have to look back again and say, what should we have done? So it's, 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 Ultimately, in response to the to the mantra of never again, and I think that is something that we constantly need to look back to um, as we we sort of um, engage and, and try and chart a way forward for for advancing the the practical agenda of R two P. I want to thank um, our guests. Thank you, Karen, for joining us. We really appreciate your your um, insights. We also invite feedback from our listeners. You can find me on Twitter. Um, at Faith Kerubo and Sanusha is also on Twitter at Sanusha Naidu. Um, just leave us feedback also. Um, leave us feedback on whatever platform that you listen uh, to the podcast on. And we appreciate it. So with that, thank you. Uh, and we look forward to having you for our next episode.